Good to see you here this morning. Take your Bibles, turn with me if you would. Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. Some have pointed out to me that you don't know what's in this glass, and that's true. Some maintain its water. Acts chapter 25. This morning's message could also just as equally uh, be entitled Frustrated or Fruitful, which would characterize your life. Life is full of things that have the potential to frustrate us, but the circumstances that can frustrate us can also be fruitful in our growth in the Christian faith, all depending on how we handle it. If we see things only from a human perspective, then it's a likelihood that we're going to be frustrated. We're going to become impatient and frustrated and think, well, what a waste of time. But if we see things through God's eyes, if we see God at work orchestrating all of the circumstances of our life according to his plan, then we can rest in him, knowing that he will work together for our good according to his purpose. Now, we all know Romans 8, 28, which says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It does not say that all things are good. It merely says that all things work together for good to accomplish the will of God and the children of God. Now, Paul could have easily become frustrated while he waited in prison in Caesarea. Felix, the former governor, knew that Paul was innocent, but he had kept him in prison anyway hoping for a bribe from Paul's friends. Felix never received the bribe that he hoped for, and he was recalled to Rome because of complaints against his rule. And yet, hoping to gain some political capital out of that situation, he still left Paul imprisoned, according to Acts chapter 24 and verse 27. Now, in order to have the correct perspective on the events in the Apostle Paul's life, what's happening in his life at this point, we need to read our text in the light of two earlier passages. First of all, there is Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. A word came to a, a man named Ananias that there was in a certain house in Damascus a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And he was to go and minister to this man. And in the process, God told him a little about his plan for this man's life. He said, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And later, in a word of encouragement to Paul, after being rejected by the Sanhedrin, the Lord stood by him, and in Acts chapter 23 and verse 11, he said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, 
so you must also appear as a witness in Rome. Whatever happened in Paul's life will have to be filtered through God's will for his life. Paul could have easily been frustrated because although he had never been found guilty of any crime, he has been in prison already for over two years. But in fact, long, unjust imprisonments like Paul's are a regular feature of Christian history. In March 1952 in Shanghai, a man named Watchman Nee was arrested by the Chinese Communist Religious Affairs Bureau. Basically, he was arrested for being a Christian, a Christian leader at that. He was falsely condemned, he was judged, and he was sentenced to 15 years of imprisonment in 1956. After 20 years of imprisonment in different prison and work camps, five years longer than his sentence, he died while still in prison in May, on May the 30th, 1972. False imprisonment, long imprisonment, has never been absent from the Christian faith. Now, I want you to note with me three things. First of all, the arrival of the new governor in the first verse. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up to Caesarea to Jerusalem. Felix is replaced as procurator in in Judea by a man by the name of Festus. Not much is known about Festus before his arrival in Caesarea in late A.D. 59 or early A.D. 60. His rule would last barely two years. He would die while he was in office in A.D. 62. He appears to have been an honorable and prudent man for the most part. He probably would have enjoyed greater success if his predecessor hadn't left things in such a mess. Felix had left him the task of restoring order in a province that was near the breaking point. It was overrun with robbers and thieves. But unfortunately, he tried to do something the same as Felix had done, and that was he tried to balance justice and political expediency. Festus wanted to start his administration out correctly, so almost immediately upon assuming his position as governor of Judea, he made an appearance in Jerusalem. Although his headquarters was in Caesarea, the headquarters for the Jews, their capital, was in Jerusalem. Unfortunately for Festus, he not only inherited his predecessor's political problems, but he also inherited his most celebrated prisoner, Paul. We begin in verse 2 to look at the petition. Then it says the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul and they petitioned him. Although Paul had been in prison in Caesarea for two years, the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem had not forgotten about him. Almost immediately upon the appointment of this new governor, the Jewish leaders began to press this new governor regarding their case against Paul. We see the reason in verse 3, which is a plot, 
says, asking a favor against him, he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So the religious leaders asked Festus for a favor, that Paul's trial would be conducted in Jerusalem rather than in Caesarea. And although the request, at least on the surface, appears innocent enough, Luke makes it clear that the intention of these accusers was not to try Paul, but to kill Paul. This angry group of quote-unquote religious men are completely controlled by their rage against Paul and their desire to see him dead. Now that seems very ironic if you stop to consider who these men were. These men are the top religious leaders of the nation of Israel. They are God's chosen people. They are men who have the privilege of access to God's word as revealed in his holy scripture. These men have access to God through worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet in spite of all these privileges, they are intent on murdering Paul, one of their own countrymen, a man who has done them no wrong, just as John had revealed in relation to Jesus. Rather than coming to the light in repentance, they tried to put out the light so that they could continue in their sin. John wrote in John chapter 3 and verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. It is amazing to consider that history teaches us that some of the worst things that have ever been done by people have been done by those who were claiming to do the will of God. It's the motivation of ISIS today who say they're doing the will of Allah. Unfortunately, it's also been said of Christians who have done horrendous things, they said, in the name of God. Look at the posturing in verses 4 and 5. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there are any fault in him. Festus, perhaps attempting a rather take-charge attitude, was determined not to let these Jewish leaders push him around. He may have been kind of sending a subliminal message to them, hey, I'm willing to cooperate with you, but I'm not willing to be manipulated by you. And he determines that Paul will be tried in Caesarea, not in Jerusalem. And if they want to bring charges against Paul, it's going to have to be there. Now look secondly at the accusation of the Jews. In verse 6 it says, And when he had remained among them more than ten days, that is Festus, He went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting in the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. Now, Festus didn't rush back to Caesarea. He spent with a kind of a 
calculated deliberateness, he stayed on in Jerusalem for another week and a half before returning to Caesarea. But when he does so, the Jews appear and they lay their charges in verse 7. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. As soon as the trial started, the Jews took Festus by surprise. They surrounded literally Paul like a pack of hungry wolves, perhaps seeking to intimidate him both verbally and physically. There are many serious charges or many serious complaints where basically the same complaints, the same charges that they have laid all along, that he had violated the Jewish law, that he had desecrated the temple, and that he was a threat to the Roman government. These are serious charges, but they could not prove them. No proof was given. No witnesses were called. Why? Because there was no proof and there were no witnesses because Paul was innocent. When Paul found himself standing before the same angry accusers who had tried to get him executed two years earlier, he easily could have been become discouraged. It must have been hard for Paul to listen to the same old accusations again and again and again. Certainly those accusations had to have hurt. Even the apostle Paul was not immune to the emotional wounds when injustice is continually heaped upon him. He must have wanted to shout at some point, enough is enough. Although these guys didn't have anything new to say, they just wouldn't give up. In verse 8, he gives us his rebuttal. And he answered for himself, neither the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Paul calmly defended himself before the same angry group of Jews and for a new governor by denying point by point every charge made against him. And in verse 9, we have the reply of Festus. Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and be judged before me concerning these things? Festus found himself with a dilemma. And his dilemma was this. He could not find Paul innocent without incurring the anger and the opposition of the Jewish leaders. And he cannot find Paul guilty because he has no legitimate charges to be laid against him. Festus asked Paul if he's willing to have the trial moved to Jerusalem, all the while giving him assurance that he would remain in charge of the trial, saying, and be judged before me. Although it is formed in a question, are you willing? It's probably more in a statement of an intention. Festus has by this point evidently changed his mind and conceded to the Jews that Paul be tried in Jerusalem. Why was Festus suddenly willing to do what he had refused to do earlier, which was namely try Paul in Jerusalem? Luke provides the real reason for Festus' about face. In verse 9 he says, For he wished to do the Jews a favor. It was the politics of compromise, pure and simple. 
And third, there is the appeal to Caesar. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. First of all, Paul says, I'm innocent. He simply and truthfully declares that he has not committed any crimes, that his arrest and his imprisonment were unjustified. He stated publicly that Festus knew full well that he was innocent. In fact, he says, I'm standing where I need to be judged, and you should judge me, and you should set me free. But he says, I'm willing to bear the just penalty. Paul's not seeking to evade judgment. In fact, he is demanding it. He says in verse 11, If I am an offender or I have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. Paul says that if he was guilty of any violation of the law, he was willing to suffer the appropriate penalty, even death. In fact, rather than stirring up trouble against their empire, Paul teaches that Christians are to live under the authority of civil government. Paul wrote about the Christian's responsibility in relationship to human government in his letter to Romans. He said in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are no terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be afraid of, unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have the praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, for because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Paul acknowledges that if he has committed any crime, he is willing to die. This argues that that government does have the right of capital punishment. For the government to take the life of a convicted criminal who has committed serious offenses does not violate the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder, really, rather than kill. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 says, whosoever sheds man's blood by him, man's, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Certainly, the judicial process needs to be extremely careful to establish guilt beyond the shadow of a doubt for a fair trial. But to abolish criminal capital punishment in cases of first-degree murder because we believe it is barbaric actually results in greater barbarism because it cheapens rather then elevates the value of human life. Paul didn't fear death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul told how he stood in danger every hour and he faced death every day. 
Finally, in verse 11, we have his appeal to Caesar. Paul realizes that he would not get a fair trial in Jerusalem. That is, if he arrived alive in Jerusalem, he would not get a fair trial. And so he is forced to appeal his case to Caesar. I think it's worthy of note to consider what Caesar he's appealing to. The emperor at this time is Nero. Most of us are aware of Nero's later persecution of Christians in Rome. And it might appear to us that this doesn't bode well for Paul. But Nero's earlier reign was marked by general stability before his dark side surfaced with the violence and cruelty and ultimately his own suicide. But Paul was going to Rome just as God had promised. He was going to have his ability to speak before kings. He was going to bear witness in Rome just as God had promised. Paul's ultimate perspective for vindication did not lie in Caesar's judgment, but in the promise that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There all of us are aware of life's injustices, which frustrate us and hurt us, but at that time, they will all be set right. And we'll receive, we will be able to receive Christ's righteousness given by grace to all who believe. In verse 12, Paul tells us, And then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you must go. From Luke's account, we get the impression that Festus taught, turns to his counselors and says something like, Can he do that? And after a little conferring among themselves, perhaps a few minutes of silence and some muffled conversation, they assured him that he could. And so he indicated to Paul that his appeal would be honored. You have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. I think initially, perhaps, uh, Festus breathed a sigh of relief when Paul made his appeal. Perhaps he thought he would no longer have to deal with this case. But upon further Reflection, no doubt Festus realized that he still faced some problems. Since this case is going directly to Caesar, he would be required to send a full report of the circumstances leading up to this appeal. He would be expected to list the charges against this man. And of course, he had nothing that he knew would stand, would stand scrutiny. The absence of any real charges would not only be embarrassing, but would reflect badly upon his administration. Now think for a minute with me about Paul. He had been tried before Felix. He had witnessed to Felix about his faith, and yet Felix had not been converted and Paul had not been released. He had witnessed before Festus. He had shared his faith with Festus, and yet Festus has not been converted and Paul has not been released. And in spite of that, God is working all things together for good for Paul according to his purpose. The key for applying this in our lives is to view our circumstances, however seemingly frustrating and confusing from God's sovereign, providential perspective not from our human perspective. 
Often our greatest opportunities for ministry, our greatest opportunities for growth, will come disguised as frustrating and confusing circumstances. When we seem to be restricted from reaching our goals, if we view those circumstances from the human perspective, we will view them just as so much bad luck. We'll grumble in discouragement and we'll be, we will miss the opportunity to be used by the Lord. Frustrated or fruitful, the decision is ours depending on how we react to those circumstances in our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for each one that's gathered here. I don't know their particular needs, but I know that you do. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be very real to them this morning. It may be that some of them are facing particularly frustrating experiences in their lives. At least from the human perspective, they don't see the point. It looks like a great waste of time. But as your children, we realize that you are working all things together for our good. No, not all things are good, but you're working all things together for our good. Help us, Lord, to be able to gain a little bit of your perspective this morning, recognizing that how we react will determine whether we're frustrated or fruitful, and, Lord, we want to be fruitful. If there's one here this morning that doesn't know you in a personal, intimate way, I pray that today they might, they might realize that they're a sinner, just like all the rest of us that are gathered here, that they can't save themselves, but that Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done on the cross of Calvary, and all they need to do is accept that payment that he has already made for them. Father, there may be those who need to just spend some time with you today may do, need to be accept a fresh touch from you today, either right where they are or whether they come to the altar or not. Lord, I pray that you administer them and their needs. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?